This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we continue the mini-series on global learning metrics. Last week, we heard from Eric Hanushek about the desirability of large-scale international assessments, such as PISA. He argued that cross-national tests offer ways for countries to see what is possible when it comes to student learning. But what effect are large-scale international assessments having on national governments? In my conversation today, I speak with Radhika Gurr about how PISA and its embedded assumptions about education are going global. In our conversation, Radhika unpacks what it means to see like PISA. She finds three major ways governments around the world have embraced PISA. First, governments have assumed that the very purpose of education is to increase GDP which is the cornerstone of PISA and the OECD. But of course, education has many more values that are much harder to define. Second, governments have narrowed the field of vision of the meaning of education to be in line with what PISA has been able to test. In effect, we only talk about what we can actually measure on the test, missing so many other subjects and areas that are also important to education. And the third issue she finds is that we now talk about an impersonal student as represented by PISA. The many reports put out by the OECD talk about so-called students, but they are always abstracted and without color or context. Who is this so-called PISA student? And why do governments compare their young citizens to her? Radhika Gurr is a senior lecturer at Deakin University, Australia and a director of the Laboratory for International Assessment Studies. Radhika Gurr, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thanks, Will. You have a new article in the European Educational Research Journal uh, entitled Seeing Like Pisa. What do you mean by the term seeing like Pisa? If you Google Pisa, the first entry that shows up is not the Italian city which has been in existence from the 5th century BC, but the OECD's education survey the Program for International Student Assessment, or PISA, which was started as recently as the late 1990s. When PISA rankings are released simultaneously around the world, like a Harry Potter book, it makes media headlines globally. PISA is the largest component of OECD's education budget, and countries like Australia have introduced the ambition of being in the top five in PISA rankings. So that tells you a little bit about how influential and famous PISA has become. So the simpler answer to the question, what is seeing like PISA, is to say PISA has become very influential and is shaping policy in many countries around the world, and policymakers are seeing through the eyes of PISA. But the more interesting answer, and I think the more important one, has to do with what PISA epitomizes. PISA didn't pop up from nowhere, and if it is flourishing, it's because that way of thinking and seeing has become widely established in our our governance practices. There are some key features of seeing like PISA. The first is that it's a fiscal focus, that is seeing seeing education in economic terms as an investment which is expected to yield good returns. So this requires calculations. And if you see, um, you have to calculate to see if the returns are good enough. The second feature is seeing the world in comparative terms. Once you start comparing, you become competitive. Education rankings have become very important. Everyone wants to be in the top five or top ten. Everyone at least wants to be above average, which is, of course, a mathematical impossibility. But this sits well with the OECD's commitment to the market 
and more generally to the neoliberal focus on choice and competition and marketization that characterizes governing style in many countries today. So to compare, you also need to standardize. You need to have some standard indicators against which to pitch different countries. So when you try to standardize and render measurable the quality and quantity, sorry, quality and equity of school systems, you inevitably are going to get some reduction. It is not easy to render quantifiable a lot of the qualities that we might consider important in education. The fourth thing is the international nature of such comparison. When the scale goes international, you get a synoptic view, a view from above. It's a kind of aggregated system kind of view. You lose the detail, you lose the within country differences, and you lose the minorities and the outliers in such accounts. You see things at a glance. Today, there are a number of such comparisons in every field health at a glance, education at a glance, pensions at a glance even. This at-a-glance way of thinking obscures a lot of really important detail. So seeing like PISA is not really just about PISA. It is about making the world legible in a fiscal reductionist synoptic and, and, synoptic and abstract and comparative way. So I want to be clear that, the PISA, that, that PISA is actually not the cause of seeing like PISA. PISA itself is a product of, seeing like, of the seeing like PISA phenomenon. PISA depends on the presence of a large infrastructure of data collection, statistical expertise, and gov government agreements, all of which have developed over decades and across many fields. At the same time, PISA also perpetuates this way of ordering the world. So you, in your article, you use the, um, the book by James Scott, Seeing Like a State, as a parable, in a sense, to think through PISA and, and the rankings that we, we know so well in the field of comparative education. Can you just talk a little bit about um, James Scott's book, Seeing Like a State, and, and how that helped you think through seeing like PISA? Yeah. Well, the subtitle of Scott's book is How Certain S Schemes to Improve the Human Condition Have Failed. Now, Scott this book is about large state-sponsored social engineering projects which were designed to do good things. In the instances he details, what happens is that the projects themselves succeed spectacularly, but what they fail to do is to improve the human condition. In fact, they end up being disastrous for the human condition. The opening chapter of Scott's book is about forestry management practices in the 1700s in Prussia and Saxony, and he details his thesis in this chapter. Now, you might wonder what the 18th century Prussian forests have in common with 21st century education. But as I read the chapter, I was struck by the close parallel between the two. So let me explain about this. Scott's story of Prussian forestry is about the state's project of making forests more politically and administratively convenient to govern. Forests were really important to the crown's finances and, and for its security. So managing them and increasing yield was a very important activity. So the effort was to harness nature for economic purposes. This was the translation of nature into a natural resource. The first thing they needed to do was to measure the worth of their forests. How much timber was there? This was a very difficult, sorry, this is very difficult to calculate when the forest is so biologically diverse. From trees and shrubs to birds and insects, it is teeming with life. Most of it might have been useful actually to the, even invaluable to the communities nearby but it had little fiscal value. To make measuring easier, the Prussians took an exclusively fiscal view, focusing single-mindedly on timber-yielding trees. They devised ways to, cat ways to categorize trees into five different standard types, based on how much timber they would yield. Soon, instead of trees, they only saw planks of wood. Eventually, they translated the forest in all its diversity and beauty and usefulness 
into numbers and ledgers. All the standardization and abstraction allowed them to get a synoptic view. Sitting in their offices in the city, they could see the distant forest translated into neat rows and columns of numbers right on their desktops. desktops. Of course, their desktops would have looked a little different to ours, I guess. The picture of the forest reflected in the ledger books looks so logical and convincing and convenient in all its simplicity that they started to actually plant forests in neat rows and columns with all the shrubbery cleared. This was a powerful and dramatic move. They planted the same species of tree in each forest at the same time, making planting and harvesting much easier. They were very easily able to predict the yield of their fiscal planning. This style of forestry management became hugely successful and began to be taught in universities and to spread to many countries around the world. In the long run, however, this was disastrous. The practice of monoculture had depleted the soil capital and the biodiversity of the forests and made the forests susceptible to a variety of threats. But it was only about 80 years later that the adverse effects of these practices became apparent. Now, I see the phenomenon of seeing like Pisa working out in the same way. We have the same fiscal view. If they translated nature into a natural resource, we are translating humans into human capital. We have standardized students and made them abstract in order to measure and compare. Students from Korea and Kazakhstan are seen in similar terms. We see the narrow focus on literacy and numeracy because, e because they are easier to measure, actually displacing in many places the unmeasured subjects like dance and the arts and even the social sciences. We see the use of these numbers for governing. Nicholas Rose has talked about governing by numbers. We see the same management practices of governing by numbers spreading in many parts of the world. What we don't know is the effect all this will have in the long run. And what's, what's amazing is that PISA is only, what is it, 16 years old at this stage. Um, and yet it seems to have so much power globally. Um, we see it in newspapers in Australia or in Germany or in Japan or in countries like Cambodia where they're, they're preparing for PISA 2021. How did PISA get to this point? How did they kind of capture so much power on the international scene? Well, if you look at the origin stories, um, there are a few different types of origin stories. One of them is about the growing anxiety in the Western world, uh, you know, especially during the later Cold War years uh, and after Sputnik in uh, the US, uh, that the Soviet Union was surging ahead and that America faced an education crisis. And this narrative of education system in crisis seems to have kind of spread everywhere. And the idea of human capital was also at the same time, you know, growing. Um, it, the, so there were increased budgets uh, allocated for education. And this meant that there was more interest in calculating the yield, the return on, on that investment. And until then, the focus, uh, until then, you know, there was a lot of statistics in education, but it was more focused on gathering input data, numbers of schools, numbers of teachers, student-teacher ratio, and so on. Uh, but I'm told that in the kind of late 1990s, uh, the U.S. really pushed the OECD into thinking about measuring outcomes. And um, at that time, TIMSS was already doing some sophisticated internationally compar com uh, comparable uh, studies, international comparisons, actually. And uh, they were looking at mathematics and science. Um, this was started by a group of academics with a focus on learning rather than economics. So when the Americans pushed the OECD to develop some outcome measures, TIMSS was actually initially considered for this purpose. But the story goes that there was a personality clash between some important members of IEA uh, and the OECD, and uh, that OECD uh, decided that it'll produce its own test, and that's how PISA was born. PISA was developed very quickly, in just a couple of years. 
So you can say that it came out due to American pressure to develop measures of education outcomes during the time of growing neoliberalism and a growing economic focus on human capital. In terms of how it actually expanded, so it initially started with just its own member nations. And um, after, uh, you know, by the next round, a few other countries joined. It's a voluntary thing. Student, uh, countries can ask to join, uh, join uh, PISA. And so now it has about 74 systems. I think there were some systems that it was keen to include. Um, I think it was very keen to have India and China in its, uh, in its surveys. Uh, but in most other cases, in fact, initially, it was not even particularly interested. I remember interviewing one um, PISA uh, official, and he was saying, I don't know why Peru joined. You know, what can they learn from PISA? They can learn nothing. From, I don't see why they wanted to join. So initially, it was they were not you know, looking to expand. Uh, it was more about other countries wanting to wanting to join and, and um, you know, see themselves on the world uh, league tables. But I think that has changed now. And I think OECD is now actively looking uh, to go to other places and to expand uh, PISA. Um, so there are a few other types of PISA that are coming up. Um, so you have, um, you know, PIAC, which is like PISA for adults, which is already... Uh, been trialed a few times, which has already actually been uh, implemented a few times. We've had a few rounds of that second round of survey, I think, recently. Uh, then we've, we've got um, PISA for development, which is happening. It is uh, going to be trialed next month in eight uh, countries. You mentioned Cambodia earlier, including Cambodia, Honduras, uh, Ecuador, and so on. And um, you are now hearing about PISA for babies, uh, which apparently is a new initiative that's coming out for uh, five-year-olds. Uh, there's also PISA for schools. I think Bob Lingard in a Fresh Ed uh, podcast has talked about that earlier, uh, which is where schools, individual schools can uh, be tested and they can be compared against international rankings. So there's a lot of um, initiatives that are going on now. So, I mean, it sounds like PISA's ready to test anyone at any age from birth till death, if they could. Um, the, the term is cradle to grave. Cradle to grave, yeah. I mean, testing from cradle to grave. <laughs> and so, so does PISA do anything other than just provide testing? Yes. Well, um, in terms of uh, it has uh, other than its uh, tests in mathematics and and um, science and reading, they're actually called literacies. They talk about mathematical literacy, reading literacy, and scientific literacy. Uh, apart from that, all students do, a ba uh, they fill in a student survey, which is uh, a background survey. So they're asked questions about their parents' income, their parents' education, and their home possessions. And these three groups of indicators actually give OECD some idea of their cultural kind of um, capital. And uh, the schools also, the principals fill out a survey, and that gives them an idea of uh, administration, the school's administration, the school's kind of practices. And the OECD uses these two uh, other measures as well in its analyses. Uh, the other things that some countries have used is, um, I think, the new tests, two new tests uh, in problem solving and financial literacy. Some countries have opted to use that as well. And some countries also include a parent survey. So these, this is kind of the suite of uh, surveys that are part of PISA. And what happens is that... Um, PISA can then, OECD can then do analysis like these particular school administration um, yeah, practices uh, are linked with this kind of performance. So that's uh, the kind of stuff they can do. They can also look to see whether uh, in some countries uh, uh, advantage, uh, socioeconomic advantage is closely 
linked to performance or not. And they can talk about whether systems are more or less equitable on that basis. So this data that comes out from PISA and and some of the analyses that uh, the OECD does about more or less correlations between different factors, um, do governments or do schools, um, how are they affected by the results of of PISA and, and, you know, their participation in the test? Well, I don't know about, uh, too much about the PISA for schools because that's actually a new initiative. And in fact, I, I'm not at all sure that there's actually much. Uh, I'm not a statistics expert, but I know that when I went to the OECD and I was interviewing people there, within OECD itself, there's a lot of skepticism about being able to apply a test that was you know, uh, designed to do a large system kind of level assessment to be able to actually uh, be sensitive enough to pick up things in the, at a school level. So let's not worry about the schools because it's a small initiative and only in the states. But otherwise, if, it's actually very difficult to talk about effects of PISA. In fact, when I started my PhD, that was what I'd set out to, to examine. How, how is PISA affecting Australian policy? And it's impossible to do that. You can't really link something that Australia is doing directly to PISA. Um, so w- that's why I actually prefer to talk about seeing like PISA. Which, is, uh, which provides me a, di- a different way to think about the collection of practices that actually characterize this particular way of seeing and knowing and governing, uh, rather than thinking PISA made them do this. Um, so there's been actually some research uh, on the influence of PISA on national policies. Uh, Breakspeare, actually, I think that's an OECD publication, actually found that uh, PISA results have an influence on policy reform in the majority of the partic- participating uh, countries and economies. And um, there's another report, I think it's by Hopkins and others, and they talk about the policy impact of PISA. And they said 85% of policymakers, local government officials, academics and researchers report having a relatively high level of knowledge of PISA processes and impact. So it's kind of it penetrates the, the policy kind of arena quite, quite well. And they also asked them, you know, in what areas do you think it is most likely to affect policies? And that's quite a nice list. So say that um, it is most likely to result in the development of national standards, in the establishment of national institutes of evaluation, in changes to the curriculum or the introduction of national curricula, and the introduction of educational programs targeting specific groups of students, and an increase in the allocation of resources to school. And also they say that it might result in increased collaboration amongst key stakeholders of the education systems within and across countries. So these were some of the th- things that uh, the people that they uh, talked to actually reported as likely to, to uh, affect, likely to be the effects of um, PISA. So OECD also advocates increased accountability as well as autonomy. So this is leading to centralization of power and increased national monitoring and testing. So in fact, it, that's in the list as well, you know, the development of national standards. We see that uh, happened in Australia. Uh, not only national curriculum, but also... Uh, a national test, and uh, a, a new body was set up called ACARA, which is like a central body. So a whole, uh, you know, it, it used to be that states were responsible for education, and they still are, but there's a lot of federal uh, involvement in education now. Um, that's very apparent in Australia, and it's not exclusive to Australia. Um, so th- there's also, you know, this um, Increased national testing also leads to this idea of steering uh, at a distance, which is um, a a term I think that Stephen Ball coined. 
Uh, and then new national schemes have been introduced in many places, including exit exams, because that's one of the things that OECD says is important for you know uh, better PISA results. And then there's also this idea of learning from high-scoring nations, which is fraught in many ways, actually. So first, there's nothing to say that the practices adopted in high-scoring nations actually cause the nations to score highly, because those same practices actually could be happening somewhere else. It's just that we go to Finland or we go to Shanghai and look at the practices there. But they, some other countries might be having the same practices and getting very poor results. Um, and in fact, we also don't know whether those high-scoring nations, if they'd use other practices, they might have had even better results for all we know. So it's a very poor way of thinking about it. But that's a, quite a rampant phenomenon now, this idea of learning from the best. We hope that you are enjoying this seven-part mini-series on global learning metrics. If you have liked what you've heard or want to participate in the conversation, please join us in Scottsdale, Arizona this November 10th and 11th when the inaugural symposium of the Comparative and International Education Society will bring together these guests and more to debate the value and purpose of global learning metrics. Check out freshedpodcast.com for more details on the symposium. We really hope to see you there. And so... Some of the um, some of the school systems or, or countries that you know are, are adopting or adapting their educational systems based on you know these collections of practices that are being articulated uh, by PISA are these are some of these countries experiencing better results on PISA in the future after having adopted some of these new practices that were seen as, you know, best practices by the OECD? Actually, uh, my friend Margaret Wu, she has a wonderful graph uh, in which she shows how English-speaking nations are all experiencing declining PISA results. Uh, in Australia, there's a lot of hype about slipping, both in uh, relative and in absolute scores. Uh, we introduced our national test called NAPLAN in 2008, and uh, those have also not been, uh, we've not been showing any growth at all in those as uh, recently, uh, the last few weeks we've been, um, you know, the, the, our radio airwaves and um, press has been full of that. So um, I can't be sure that we can at- attribute changes to policies and practices directly to PISA, but certainly national assessments in many parts of the world especially in the U.S., have resulted in, in the widely reported phenomenon of the narrowing of the curriculum. Berliner and, and others have talked extensively about that. And also to children getting, um, you know, actually either bored or, you know, not getting the best education as, as teachers focus more and more on um, getting better results on, on the tested subjects because in the States in particular, finances depend, depended upon that, schools were getting closed or amalgamated and so on. And um, this also led to kind of, um, in some cases, uh, a a terrible tragedy where teachers started to cheat. And in fact, schools and whole school districts actually started to cheat. It's such a travesty um, that the very things that education should be giving, uh, a sense of ethics and so on, uh, were actually, um, you know, being challenged um, because of test scores. So OECD actually doesn't link, you know, if you think of how does OECD respond to this, it's not actually, it doesn't associate itself in any way with this idea of narrowing of the curriculum. Uh, because PISA, is, it actually sees that, it sees its own, uh, itself as a rich application-based assessment. Uh, it says it's not linked to the curriculum. It's an application of what students know. And uh, so it doesn't, it sees that, you know, if students can do well in PISA, it doesn't mean that you have to narrow the curriculum. Unless they have a rich curriculum, they can't do well on PISA, is, is OECD's argument. 
so PISA is exploring though how to um, you know expand its suite of tests and uh, so in addition to mathematics and science and reading it's adding new things like problem solving and scientific sorry and financial literacy and it's also working on other so called 21st century skills like teamwork and i've heard some about some initiatives i think to do with global capabilities but i'm not too sure about that so i'd like to return to um seeing like a state and and the idea that you put forward seeing like pisa um in seeing like a state one of the main arguments was that you know high modernist central planners um who tried to design society based on scientific laws ultimately failed um and i just i just want to know do you do you think andreas schleicher the head of the pisa or oecd pisa division do you think he is exhibits some of these high modernist um ways of thinking that scott critiques okay so i think there's some um there's some parallels but there's and there are some worrying developments the first is that with projects like you know it's surprisingly i'll be shifting attention from oecd actually to uh the big unesco um uh sustainable development goals uh that that were instituted recently so after after the education for all um initiative finished in 2015 they did some they did some um evaluations of the success of education for all and they found that you know globally there were still i think some 250 million or so uh, children that still couldn't read or write and that half of them had been in school for four years or more so they are now shifting attention to the idea of actually monitoring the quality of schooling which you know earlier their focus was also more on inputs on you know the provision of schooling on you know whether teacher there were enough teachers etc uh so so this refocusing of shifting of attention to to the quality of schooling has um created all sorts of uh, new initiatives now first of all it's given oecd an opportunity to put up its hands and say you know pick us we know how to do this stuff we know how to do this outcome measurement stuff so earlier oecd was mostly interested in its own member countries uh, but now um, you know it's it's really quite keen to enter all the low income nations as well or the so called global south earlier you know unesco had a different set of regional assessments uh, for the poorer nations of africa and asia and latin america so oecd was looking at the richer nations unesco was looking at the poor, poorer nations and there were two different kinds of you know approaches to this whole idea of uh, measurement and in fact governance as well and uh, now oecd unesco uis and agencies like pearson and ets and pratham and the brookings institution and you know all sorts of very very different institutions are coming together they're all consulting each other they're forming alliances they're working together uh, it's really interesting you know uh, there are igos ngos for profit ventures think tanks and they're all working together on kind of global metrics in as part of the uh, education 2030 program that that unesco has instituted the fact that these very disparate organizations are working together may mean that there are fewer checks and balances and that there's less critique so that you know earlier it used to be like two camps and at least there was some kind of critique back and forth and this kind of coming together into one really powerful kind of global amalgamation that i find a little bit worrying uh, and there is a global agenda there is in fact a global agenda that is framed in education 2030 
And this is very much focused on measuring and monitoring. There's a very strong, um, you know, because I think there's so much aid money that's being poured into um, into this project. They want to be sure that to hold the countries accountable. So they're, you know, very strongly bringing in a lot of uh, monitoring uh, and accountability measures. And that is how OECD is also going in. So PISA is trialing PISA for development in eight low-income nations next month. And this is uh, a modified version of PISA that can be linked to the main PISA for the purposes of comparison. Uh, and there is an idea that before long, there'll be over 100 nations that will be doing PISA. And sometime back, PISA set up uh, PISA for schools, as I told you earlier. And um, there's also PIAC and there's uh, PISA for babies now. So I think this kind of, there is a, uh, there is, uh, you know, I, I don't like conspiracy theories, but it does seem like there's an expansion of this. And the fact that there are so many uh, that so many organizations supporting this, I think, makes it, uh, you know, quite a big project, uh, a bit seeing like seeing like a state type of project. Right. I mean, it seems like if if we're moving towards the development of one global matrix in education, or one way to measure educational, um, I don't know, test scores and outcomes. And all of these different actors are, in a sense, buying into this system of thinking. If we take seeing like a state's argument seriously, then it, it would suggest that we are kind of sowing the seeds of failure into this system. Well, it's hard to say. Uh, with with uh, seeing like a with uh, the the Prussian forest anyway, it took eighty years, you know, to to know uh, whether this was going to work or fail. And for the longest time, it was a great success. And uh, in fact, so much of a success that it spread everywhere in the world and, you know, it became, as I said, taught in universities. You know, there are forests in India that are, you know, um, planted in that, uh, in, in that style. Um, and for, for, uh, it's only after 80 years that they realized that this is not working very well and, and also that the effects were actually irreversible. Um, so... The Germans, you know, they had to respond with all sorts of um, new measures to kind of compensate for that. Um, so we don't know with, with PISA because the first batch of PISA test takers um, would be in their early 30s now. And it would have taken countries a few years before introducing significant changes, uh, you know, following their PISA results. And even longer for those changes to manifest in any kind of statistically significant ways in student performance. And even longer for those students to take up jobs and become senior enough to influence, you know, um, the world in significant ways. So actually, we can't tell, uh, you know, what the effects are, whether they're positive or negative. Uh, but but that's my point. We actually don't know that it's actually a good thing. And for us to be, you know, going wholesale into this thing without an alternative uh, approach or thought, I think that is what um, that is why I felt compelled actually to write that paper. It's a bit more pulpitish, you know, I, I, that's not my style. Usually I don't, um, you know, stand on a soapbox usually. But with with this, I, I really felt compelled to write that because I felt that, um, you know, that there is something very big and global going on. And uh, we should actually not all blindly kind of um, shut our eyes to other possibilities or other ways of thinking or knowing. So I guess we'll have to wait another 80 years before we know what ends up happening here? <laughs> Maybe not 80, but at least I think another 30 years. <laughs> well, Radhika Gaur, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed today. My pleasure. Thank you, Will. Radhika Gur is a senior lecturer at Deakin University. 
The article discussed in this podcast can be found in the European Educational Research Journal, which you can find at freshedpodcast.com. Fresh Ed is brought to you by the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society. Fresh Ed contributors include Rolf Straubhar, Eric Lehman, D. Brent Edwards Jr., Chrissy Monahan, and Aaron Baxter. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not CIES or the Globalization and Education SIG, which take no institutional positions. Please be sure to visit freshedpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll see you next week.